Welcome back to National Treasure Hunt, the podcast where the secret lies not only with Charlotte, but also with your co-hosts. I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And today's installment, as we very rapidly approach the end of season three of this show, Mind Blown, is the third and final installment in our subgenre of episodes this season into character analyses. Emily, I'm not even going to introduce the topic of this character analysis yet. I just want you to tell us how excited you are about it and let everyone assume for themselves what episode we're doing today. I'm so excited, guys. I can finally use all the quotes that I've been saving up. They're amazing. And you're going to die because it's awesome. And it is great. And it makes me so happy. And I'm overjoyed right now. Well, I really hope they don't die. That would be a little extreme. Um, But hopefully they do enjoy it. And if that little intro wasn't enough context for you. Today's character analysis will take a deep dive into the world of the one and only Riley Poole. (laughs) So hopefully at this point you all have listened to our previous two character analyses, taking a look at Benjamin Franklin Gates and Abigail Chase. And if you have, then you're gonna know exactly how this episode is going to play out. We're gonna use the same structure Um, which will begin with a background on Riley. Spoiler alert, we know even less about him than we do Abigail. Then we'll go into our adjective game where Emily and I try to convince each other that we know the best ways to describe Riley Poole based on his minimal appearances, if you will, in the film. Then we move on to Emily's classic patriarchy corner, and I will finish us off with our Riley Poole versus Justin Bartha actor comparison. But before we get to all that, we have to start with our classic intro segment, Screams from Parkington Lane, which is really just an acknowledgement on my part and on Emily's part that National Treasure and this podcast has infiltrated every crack of our daily lives. And we kind of like to own up to that here on the show. So Emily, what is your scream from Parkington Lane this week? My scream is that this week, I, many of you may, well, none of you know this, but. (laughs) (laughs) Good start. (laughs) I have recently uh, acquired my PhD in neuroscience. Actually, they do know that. I posted it about it on our social media. Oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) So that happened. And. Along with that came my finishing up of my time in my current lab and beginning of time that I'm going to transition to my new lab. So I have a couple weeks off here as I'm in between, and I've been looking for things to do aside from cleaning. And my mother texted me the other day and told me that she was finally getting around to listening to some of our podcast episodes from season one. And then told me that she thinks she needs to rewatch both movies and invited me over to use some of my free time to do this rewatch with her. Oh, that's so cute. Are you going to do it? Most likely, yes. Oh, yeah. Because you can always rewatch National Treasure. It is the most rewatchable. How about you all? Well, my scream this week is, in my opinion, one of the 
deepest, darkest screams you can have when admitting to yourself just how deep into the pit of national treasure you are. It's a dream. I had a dream, Emily. Um, specifically this time around, I had a dream that, uh, Nicolas Cage basically agreed to be my mentor. Wow. Um, I don't even know in my little dream what the context of this was, why I even had the distinct pleasure of being in the same physical room as (laughs) Nicolas Cage. Um, but like the highlight here was that he gave me his number. What? And the funny part was I distinctly remember like a plot point of this dream was when he was putting my number into his phone, he like made up a name for me. So like Mm -hmm. he didn't put my number in as Aubrey. He made up a a name and that was just like a thing that he did, which I don't know. Obviously we don't know Nicolas Cage, but we've read a lot about him and that seems like something he might do. Yeah, it kind of tracks. Um, and then unfortunately I woke up and didn't get to benefit from his mentorship in my dream state, but that's my scream. Wow. What was he mentoring you for? Again, not a clue. Okay. But in the dream, he was like sitting on my parents' couch. So he was like an integrated part of my life. Okay. Well, let's use some of those connections and get him on our podcast. So I think what we need is to uh, telepathically through my future dreams that mm-hmm. I may or may not have about him, try to communicate with him and get him to reach out to us. Yes. That's the only logical conclusion from this scream from Parkington Lane. <laughs> Obviously. And with that, uh, let's invite our listeners to please tell us if they have screams to share. You can find us on... Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. And guys, we are also checking out this new app called Good Pods, where you can find us to listen to there. If you want to tell us about your screams, your thoughts about the episode, anything really that is on your mind, please feel free to hook up with us at NT Hunt Podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. And while you're at it, go ahead and support us by checking out our merch store on TeePublic. Get your t-shirts, your magnets, your stickers, your notebooks, anything and everything that you might want to be able to use, but also to advertise this beautiful podcast. And with that, Aubrey, please let's get into the episode because I can wait no longer to talk about Riley Poole. All right. Well, as promised, we're going to get started with an overview of Riley Poole's background. As discussed at the very top of this episode, Riley Poole is played by Justin Bartha, who was 26 at the time of National Treasure's release, which means he was 29 at the time of National Treasure 2. And Emily, what? I know. Once again, I feel like I'm echoing the entire intro to our Abigail episode, but Oh, don't worry. I feel like I'm going to be doing that for the entirety of this episode. <laughs> okay, well, I'll start us off because this absolutely blows my mind. Just like Abigail slash Diane Kruger's age at the time of filming for her. I just, I just it does not, it does not compute. But the more I thought about this, honestly, if you consider the fact that maybe Justin Bartha is playing age appropriate, Does this maybe help justify the relationship between Ben and Riley in making them, 
you know, less of equal aged friends and more of like a professor student sort of mentor mentee type of relationship. I, I kind of thought about this because they're clearly not equals. We've discussed that before. Yeah. And maybe this like justifies it a little more and makes Ben a little bit less gross in that regard. <laughs> a little bit less of a jerk. Yeah, that, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I don't mind putting Ben in his place. I think that makes sense. I I would be confused, as I'm sure you're going to get into momentarily, uh, as to what exactly he would be teaching Riley about necessarily, because they don't seem to have overlapping skill sets. He does seem to really be a like a part of this team for a specific but because he brings specific skill sets to the table. Right. But I mean, you talked about your research experience just a few moments ago. When you're a professor, you don't hire a bunch of students necessarily that just replicate your skill sets. Uh, you are oftentimes hiring students, graduate students, postdocs that have specific niche roles to fill in your lab that you might not necessarily be able to fill yourself. Mm, this is true. Okay. I, I see your point. Continue. All right. Well, just something for everyone to, to think about. Would be curious to hear your thoughts. Um, but also, like I kind of spoiler alert mentioned at the top here, the more we, we dug into our prep for this episode, the more we realized that we know maybe less about Riley than we do even about Abigail, which is pretty astounding because we know next to nothing about Abigail. <laughs> And to be honest, Em, I'll ask your opinion here. This was a little surprising to me. I think it's because we just take for granted that he's in most scenes of this movie and it makes you think that you know a lot about him, but the more you like sit with your knowledge, you really don't know anything. I guess in, in thinking about this, I, I wonder if you feel the same way. Um, I mean, I definitely agree that we, we don't really know much about Riley. Um, it hurts my heart a little to say that because, you know, favorite character and all that. But I mean, definitely we just kind of, in my mind, we get this impression of him as like this computer guy. Mm -hmm. And now that I'm thinking about it more, there's not really much else to it. Okay, yes, you are absolutely proving my point for me. Uh, so in our first present day sequence in the first National Treasure film, we learned that Ben and presumably Ian um, found Riley in some cubicle office job. And I say Ian because in the scene where we're introduced to this very minimal point about Riley, they say, we found you in mm -hmm you know, this, this office job, which actually implies that Ian's been a part of this game longer than Riley has, which is something I hadn't really considered before. But based on Riley's tech skills, I'm inclined to predict that he was like an IT tech or something like that. We don't actually know once again. So Emily, what do you think he did as a job? I mean, I am inclined also to agree with you in the sense of doing IT stuff, but I can also see Riley as being just this out there dude who was like, I don't know, doing some like dog training helpline or something just super random like that. I can almost see that fitting him very well. Why do you say that? 
because he just has i mean you see from the fact that he knows about the the daylight savings time change and stuff like that that he has these little kind of caveats of knowledge that are small but are very distinct throughout different areas and the fact that he does the 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 tech stuff and i mean i guess that's it because we don't really learn much about riley but he's goofy and i can just see him as like maybe not have been sitting there just doing it stuff but if we're talking about this purely in terms of a heist movie i think thinking about them picking him as like the tech guy based on his it skills definitely makes the most sense yeah the other the other thing i was thinking maybe in like his spare life i could see him being like a white hat hacker or something mm, like, that. I um, like that yeah I, I figured you would it has a little bit of like a ethics vibe to it all <laughs> questionable in some senses but also commendable in others anyway in any case despite riley's extremely impressive technical skills which i certainly do not have um he's still portrayed as in some ways the less intelligent one which i find particularly interesting um, from a social commentary point of view, because I really feel like our modern conceptions of people who work in tech are the smart ones, the tech geeks, the, you know, to be revered and, and whatnot, as opposed to people who are super book smart, like a Benner and Abigail in real life, we don't necessarily look at them with the same reverence. Yeah, that, that's very true, actually. I, I can think of many a people with tech skills, especially on the superhero shows that I watch, <laughs> being like thought of as the like the smartest person in the room. Mm-hmm. So it's super, it's super interesting to me that that is not the case with Riley, which I know is something you probably don't love, but yeah. here we are. Um, as you have mentioned multiple times in our podcast history, and even sort of a few minutes ago, Riley is known for solving exactly one treasure hunt clue per movie. That would be him. That would be daylight savings time in the first film and the eagle clutching the scroll in the second film. Admittedly, both of those solves are really important for the hunt. But, you know, one clue per film nonetheless. And um, ultimately, I don't know how you're going to feel about this, Em, but I don't mean it as maliciously as it might come across. We are subtly led to believe that he joined the treasure hunt for wealth and or fame of some sort um, in excruciating contrast to Ben, who has, as we've discussed before, more noble causes. And if you don't like the way that sounds, I do have some evidence here to support it. Em, and that is the fact that, you know, he wanted more money from the treasure at the end, you know, the 1%. And so his one half of 1% wasn't sufficient for him. He buys a arguably superficial car with the money that he does get. Um, He responds to his newfound fame by writing a book, uh, which I analogize, since I do this on our show a lot, to many of the people who come off of reality television shows. That's sort of how they try to capitalize on their fame. So, um, I think that the proof is there for this sort of wealth and or fame desire for Riley. And I also think it makes sense because as we've said before, Riley is meant to be sort of the the eyes and ears of the audience, like a mm-hmm. normal guy. And I 
think it would be fair to say that most normal people, if they got into something like this, would be at least intrigued by the potential for fame and fortune. Oh, 100%. Yeah. And I, I honestly like agree with you completely. I don't see it as a downfall to his character necessarily. I just see it <laughs> as part of who he is. Like, he definitely did not join the hunt because he wanted to find out about history. He, right. he joined it because he wanted the money and because he liked Ben, I guess. And, and this might be a topic for another day because if we got onto this tangent, I think we'd be here forever. But it would be kind of interesting to assess at some point how his motives compare and contrast to someone like Ian's mm. for that reason, you know? Maybe in a future episode, we <laughs> might do that. Um, and so for this motivation stance, as well as many other reasons that I at least will discuss today in my adjective analysis, I really feel that Riley is the perfect protagonistic foil for Ben, um, because I'm really going to argue throughout the rest of this episode that they are entirely opposite and very complementary to one another. Okay, Aubrey, I have to admit I am looking at the Google Doc and I've seen your first adjective and I have to say that based on this alone, I feel like we might actually agree for the majority of this episode, so I don't know, but I, I don't know how interesting it will be, but I do know that I think maybe in places where you think some of your adjectives might have a bit of a, a negative attribute to them, I definitely take it as more of a positive attribute. And we'll get we'll get into that a little bit when I get into mine. But why don't we start with you, Aubrey? What is your first adjective to describe Riley? So the first adjective that I chose is risk averse. And I am going to make an effort to compare this to Ben's high risk, high reward attitude. Again, to, to start underscoring the very opposite sides of the coin that I feel that they represent. Um, so really, I feel like Riley is a foil to Ben at just about every action or adventure sequence I can think of in both of these films. Um, mm -hmm. And before I go any further, I really do want to emphasize that I think Riley is risk averse and not necessarily anti-adventurous. Um, and I think that's an important distinction because I don't want to call him out for being like, you know, not willing to partake in the chase or anything like that. Because, you know, whether by his own design or just getting dragged along in the <laughs> plot line, he's there and he's only complaining a little bit, right? <laughs> um, so in any case, I really do think that this... Um, opposite of Ben nature is really necessary to ground Ben and provide the movie with some self-awareness regarding how outlandish the plot and the claims can come across. And that really just speaks to Riley in this role of, you know, eyes and ears of the audience once more. Mm -hmm. So when thinking about the risk aversion that Riley exhibits, one of the first things that comes to mind for me is how he tries to dissuade Ben from stealing the Declaration of Independence. Now, this is, of course, in the first movie, Riley and Ben have taken to the steps of the Lincoln Memorial to ponder their next course of action, if you will, after their pretty unsuccessful first meeting with Abigail. And, <laughs> um, and 
if you remember this scene, it's a short scene, but I think it's very telling in terms of character traits. When Ben is trying to explain why it's imperative that they steal the Declaration to protect the Declaration, Riley's response is ultimately, you know you and or we are going to go to prison, right? (laughs) Pretty risk averse. I mean, true. And even Ben responds, yeah, probably. Yes, Aubrey. I I would like to point out here that I'm going to bring this quote up in another context later on in the episode, and I'm going to spin it in a slightly more positive light than I think it is currently being spun. It's not, it's not a negative light. It's the fact that he is not just going to be gung-ho going with this plan because he is identifying the risks and he is not in love with the risks right? A very normal person thing to do. You know, when, when Ben responds like, yeah, I probably will go to prison. Riley's response is like this subtle sarcasm, like, yeah, that would bother most people. (laughs) Clearly it would bother Riley, right? That's the whole point of this exchange. This comes up again in the movie, just, you know, a matter of minutes later, uh, following the car chase with Ian after the after, you know, Ben and company have stolen the Declaration of Independence. In this three-person exchange between Ben, Abigail, and Riley, Riley is the only one truly freaking out about his health and well-being, even though Abigail isn't even a part of this whole crew situation yet. She's really only over here freaking out because she thinks they lost the Declaration of Independence. She's not freaking out because Ian's just been shooting at them in the van. Right, yeah, that's true. I mean, there's a great quote here that you must love, Emily, where, you know, Ben is trying to make sure Abigail is okay. And Riley jumps in and he's like, still a little on edge from being shot at, but I'll be okay. Thanks for asking. (laughs) Right. It is one of my favorites. It's again, a really, you know, normal person thing to do, but also risk averse. Um, You know, I'll mention another fun quote that, you know, I feel like I'm taking your role today, but who wants to go down the creepy tunnel inside the tomb first? Yeah. Okay. It's also, you know, when Ben gets taken in by the FBI, it is distinctly Abigail and not Riley who steps in to figure out how to get him out of custody, which will inherently involve taking some risk because you're basically committing a felony. Hmm. And this bit continues International Treasure 2 even. You know, Riley seems uneasy about asking the French police for help in solving the Statue of Liberty clue. He didn't want to be part of the encounter with Ben's mom when he learned that she had this tough reputation. Mm-hmm. And of course, everyone was a little uneasy about this, but Riley included was uneasy about kidnapping the president. <laughs> so I got to ask myself, as always, where do I think this risk-averse character trait comes from? And I suspect that it might come from being a part of what we assume to be a corporate enterprise where they found him in his cubicle, you know, where you're looked at more as a cog in the wheel and where something like stirring the pot and taking risks isn't necessarily rewarded. Mm. Um, That's the only thing that I can think of in tying back to the background that we do know about. So risk averse, Emily, that is the short answer to your question of what my first adjective was. <laughs> okay. Well, Aubrey, I definitely have some further comments on that, but I'm going to save them for when I come back with my adjective. 
but that one's a little down the list for me. The first adjective that I have to describe Riley as sarcastic or kind of deadpan in terms of his humor. And I like to liken myself to Riley in many ways. And I think this is one of them. It's literally the first thing that I think of when I think of Riley from National Treasure. Now, granted, when I think of Riley, the name itself, I think of my parents' dog. So like, that's a little different, but. (laughs) Nice. I, you know, as you did, would like to highlight some, some wonderful examples of Riley just being a bit of a sarcastic jerk. Yeah. But (laughs) sarcastic nonetheless. In, in one of the first scenes when one of Ian's men is asking Riley how they even know that searching in the Arctic tundra for the Charlotte ship is like feasible how they even would know it's there the ship is there how would they even know the ship is there Riley says I'm no expert but it could be that the hydrothermal properties of this region produce hurricane force ice storms that causes ocean to freeze and then melt and then refreeze resulting in a semi-solid migrating landmass that would land a ship right about here and yes I did read that very fast because Riley delivered it relatively quickly. He didn't really take his time with that delivery, which to me adds to his sarcasm. And he's he's obviously pointing out something that's true here, but he's starting out by being like, well, I'm not an expert, but, and then he certainly sounds like a bit of an expert here. (laughs) Well, but the best part of this scene, if I do say so myself, is after he's done delivering the line and he just like turns and walks away. Yes. (laughs) And it's part of that deadpan that I'm talking about too, right? right? It's exactly, it's perfect. Um, You know, to reference once again, the, the one, the quote that you brought up, Ben asks Abigail if he's, if she's all right after they were shot at by Ian and Riley just jumps right on in there and goes ahead and responds and says still a little on edge from being shot at, but I'll be okay. Thanks for asking. Once again, bringing in a very real thing right? He did get shot at. He is on edge, but he's clearly answering a question that's not really intended for him. And he is doing it in a very snide way. In uh, a, another scene that actually happens previously to this, Ben asks Riley, do you know what the preservation room is for? And this is when Ben is talking about the room that they, you know, use to help preserve the declaration of independence and riley's response is simply delicious jams and jellies <laughs> yeah it's a bit of a jerk response like come on riley like be serious here but no he's just being sarcastic he's just being that person can i just say maybe i agree with you this is total sarcasm um 101 but I'm the more you mention these quotes and I think of them collectively the more i realize that he deploys them when he feels his his person, his knowledge, whatever it may be, is a little bit like under attack. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like it, it, it's he's threatened by someone pointing out something that he doesn't know. Yeah, and Aubrey, you know, I'm so glad you mentioned that. That's actually perfect because the next quote that I have like lines up exactly with that. I'm so glad you mentioned that. Oh God, this actually wasn't planned, you guys. <laughs> so. Uh, when they're down under Parkington Lane, uh, looking 
for the treasure, one of Ian's men is talking about, you know, one of the underground staircases that is present. And he says, how do a bunch of guys with hand tools build all this? And then because he has this knowledge, just goes, comes straight out and says, same way they built the pyramids and the great wall of China. And Riley, who in this moment must feel a little bit as if he is not quite up to the task of answering this question, snidely remarks, yeah, the aliens helped them. Which is yet another great line. And I'm going to bring it up again for one of my adjectives later. Perfect. (laughs) We're really leading each other here. Yeah, it's great. I'm telling you, Riley is just such a good character that he really, all of his lines really feed into different parts of who he is as a person they're so layered all of these quotes layered or limited layered (laughs) layered well okay fine emily if you had to guess where does this sarcastic nature come from in riley so i want to say that it's definitely a combination of his parents because that's at least where my sarcasm comes from. So in likening Riley to me, I I think that a lot of it probably came from the household in which he grew up, but it's a combination of that as well as dealing with people like Ben for a good portion of his life. Something tells me in the way that he's responding to Ben throughout these movies, that this is not the first time that he's interacted with someone with a Ben level of intelligence or the Ben attitude of being very like, noble and like slightly like more sophisticated and stuff like that and when you're dealing with people that are smarter than you or that you at least think that they're smarter than you you can often find yourself in many of the situations making yourself the sarcastic one because that's a good coping mechanism And it still makes you feel like you're bringing something to the team, right? Like you're bringing this this sense of humor, these laughs. Like Ben, you don't see Ben and Abigail audibly laugh at anything that Riley says, but you know it's probably entertaining them, at least in their heads a little bit. And I think by bringing this sarcasm in, he's able to feel as though he's bringing something to the group himself. And yes, I am speaking to this slightly from personal experience. (laughs) But I think that honestly, it just comes from the fact that he's had to deal with people like Ben. Well, that's going to definitely come back around when I get to my third adjective. Um, So I'm excited to get into that further. But I, I agree with you. The quotes that you pulled are the exact ones that I would pull to make the same case about his sarcasm. They also happen to be some of the best quotes of the movie. Oh, yeah like hands down. And I don't, I don't even mind saying that as someone who really likes Ben. Um, But yeah, I agree. So I guess I'll come in with adjective number two. Yeah, go for it. Okay. So keeping with my theme of juxtaposing Riley with Ben, my second adjective to describe Riley is superstitious compared to Ben who believes literally everything associated with the treasure. No questions asked. It's true. Yeah. Okay. So here we go. Throughout the series, Riley is truly mystified by the possibility of the impossible. This is, I think, presented as some of the humor or the sarcasm that you were just referencing, Emily. Mm-hmm. Um, but he never actually seems to be joking, or at least you're questioning 
whether he's joking at any given time, Mm -hmm. especially because it's a continuous character trait. Like he's constantly making these one-off comments that have some sort of superstitious vibe to them. Mm -hmm. So even in the opening sequence in the Arctic, we have him saying, oh, you know, don't go by me. I broke a shoelace this morning, which, you know, you hear that at the very beginning of a film and you think, oh, this guy's comic relief. But you keep hearing things like that and you're like, okay, is this guy like actually kind of believing what he's saying to some extent? How about uh, going back to your quote in Parkington Lane when the whole, you know, how do a bunch of guys with hand, hand tools, you know, build all of this? And Riley says the aliens helped them. <laughs> Again, sounds like a joke, but go back to the, that scene. Remember his tone. Remember what he's doing, sort of looking around, all mystified? He, you kind of ask yourself, does he believe what he's saying? It's really, to me, unclear. To me, it's very clear, but I'll, I'll take it as it's unclear to it's you. It's not unclear. To, it's, it's not clear to me. It is unclear to me, in part because I really do see him as the opposite of Ben, who, as you've already pointed out, seems to know everything as fact, which means that Riley's probably questioning a lot of things that we see as fact. Mm -hmm. So this even extends to National Treasure too, when Riley is audibly and visibly astonished that Mount Rushmore was built, in his words, as a cover-up, right? We hear this in the special collections section of the Library of Congress when Ben, Abigail, and Riley find the president's book and Ben is reading out Coolidge's entry that basically says, upon finding the plank, he commissioned Borglum to construct Mount Rushmore and Riley, you know, in his, I can't replicate Riley because really who can, (laughs) but he literally says, Mount Rushmore was a cover up. Beautiful. Right. But, but that's, that's his vibe. Yeah, it is. And even, even in the off season, if you will, between the first and the second movie, Riley writes an entire freaking book about, and I quote, myths that are actually true, which we know to include all kinds of conspiracy theory type stuff about Area 51, the JFK assassination, the president's secret book, of course, the Watergate tapes, and naturally the Templar treasure. So Aubrey, I just want to take this moment to ask you, Uh huh. you know, you saying these myths that are actually true. And That's what Riley says. That's right. what the book's title is. Right. But are you telling me that you don't believe that there's an area 51? Stop being sarcastic, Riley. I'm not. I'm literally asking, do you not believe there's an area 51? Of course we know there's an Area 51. That's not the point of his book. The point of his book is to say that there are aliens there. But we don't know. We've never read that part of his book. We watched the trailer of National Treasure 2, Emily, where we discussed in the first episode of this season, that would be episode 21, if anyone's missed it, that there are all kinds of scenes that they filmed for National Treasure 2 that did not make the film. Maybe they cut them because they knew that they didn't want Riley's character to be like that. We know exactly what the implication of these pieces of the book are. And it's basically Riley trying to prove conspiracy theories. It's almost like the t- finding the Templar treasure gave him the evidence that he personally needed to believe that all of these other conspiracies are true. Either that, or he literally just want, is so money and fame hungry 
that he is going to use the flashiest conspiracy theories that he can find to write a book and try to be famous. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's that's not a great alternative. I prefer that alternative. (laughs) But I mean, we can't, you cannot negate the fact that he wrote this book, okay, for whatever the motivation may be. So from all of this, maybe I, I need to amend my background statement, Emily, and say that his motivation for joining the hunt was like 50-50 profit and wanting to satiate his curiosity about these impossible possibilities. Either that or it was 100% profit. Take your pick. <laughs> and and I'm, not, I'm not done. I'm not done. To take it one step further, given that he is clearly you know, tickled by this superstition concept, you know he really enjoys the fact that he just happened to coincidentally write a clue for finding Cibola into his book without even realizing it. Okay, I do have to give you that one. I mean, that's, I'll even admit that's pretty cool, but that's just like one of those like fun coincidences that feels fake. Again, fake movie, but. Okay, Aubrey. So I'll give you some of these. Some of these, you know, I'm not quite agreeing with, but. For the sake of moving on, let's, uh, let's, how about you tell us where you think this, uh, this superstition, uh, superstitious nature comes from? I've just got to say, Em, I got to say one more thing before I talk about the origins. You can think that all of his little superstition comments in the first movie are fake and like jokes and just sarcasm, which I would agree with you if we did not have that second movie and the fact that he wrote that book. Okay. That Give to us me, a third national treasure. Prove me right. <laughs> Even one more reason. But okay, I'll get back to your question. Um, I suspect that from Riley's, you know, old life and his old cubicle job, which we're led to believe um, was extremely boring for him, and that's why he was enticed by Ben and Ian's offer. Uh, we we get the impression that maybe maybe in school and then in that job, he was kind of too smart, too intelligent, and just like utterly bored with whatever he was supposed to be doing. You know, we've, you see this trope, I think, in movies and TV shows all the time. You know, the smartest kid is just like floating through school, floating through his job, his or her job, and, you know, everything is too easy for them. So I could see that sort of background leading Riley to be sort of fascinated by the most unboring, if, <laughs> if I can, the most unboring things that he can find or things that he actually can't explain with his intelligence, like superstitions and conspiracies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'll accept that. Okay. All right. Well, Emily, it's your turn. What's your second adjective? So my second adjective is starting to take kind of the, the positive aspect of some of the things that you've already brought up about Riley and trying to highlight the positive nature of them. So my second adjective is that he is stressed, but he is reasonably stressed. Are you coming back to the whole like uh, risk averse thing here? Is this where you're coming back at me? Yes. And I, <laughs> I don't want to call him anxious because he's not an anxious person. I think that he is 100% reasonably stressed about everything that is happening okay. in these films. I didn't know stress was a character trait, but I'm here for it. Well, cause I, like I said, I didn't want to use the term anxious. Like he's not an anxious person, but 
he is a very easily stressed person. Okay, give me some give me some uh, evidence here. So when they're looking for the Templar treasure in the first movie and they're under Parkington Lane, at one point, Abigail looks over at Riley and goes, Riley, are you crying? And Riley goes, look, stares. And in that line itself, you can tell that Riley was very stressed about the fact that they were stuck under Parkington Lane and that they reasonably might not have a way out. Because it seemed like, you know, Ian took the way out when he went up on that dumbbell waiter system, right? The little elevator thing with the ropes. But, you know, Riley gets so excited when they see stairs because he's been internally stressed, the poor thing, this whole time about whether or not they were going to be able to get out of this tunnel. Whereas Ben and Abigail and Patrick, well, not Patrick, Ben and Abigail (laughs) are just like gung-ho going forward and are just like, yeah, let's keep going. Let's keep looking. Let's get further and further into this tunnel in which we might not have a way out of. And Riley is like, yo, guys, this is some stressful stuff. <laughs> to me, this is just another way of saying risk averse. <laughs> but I'm, it's reasonable. Okay. I don't think he's being risk averse in an unreasonable way. I don't think he's stressed in an unreasonable way. I think he is 100% reasonable in his fear that there might not be a way out. I think once again, you throw any rando off the street into this situation and they would be exactly what Riley is in this scenario. Yes. And then, you know, when Riley's looking down from that, my, my, my most stressful scene with the tilt platform in the second movie in the second movie when they're on the tilt platform and they're like what what does it look like down there riley goes death and despair mostly death i mean a little despair the last few seconds but then hard sudden death which once again i will say accurate riley also sarcastic to some extent (laughs) also sarcastic to some extent yes but i saved it for here because i felt like once again as we've talked about i am so stressed by this tilt platform and i'm just an observer i'm not on the platform i'm not there in the room riley is there in the room and he is responding once again in a reasonably stressed manner Can I just say the more I hear you explain this and also the more I hear you react to the things that I say, the more I'm realizing that you see yourself as, as Riley, like point blank. I do. (laughs) So you're taking anything that I say as a personal attack against you. I am, (laughs) but I think it's helping with the episode. So I'm going to keep doing it and then decompress about it later. (laughs) All right. Do you, do you have more stress to share? Yeah, I do. His reaction when Ben sticks his hand in the hole in the rocks during the second movie and pretends to get hurt, Riley screams. That is an accurate response. That is fair. He is stressed about Ben getting hurt and Ben is just playing a little game. And Riley over here is just reasonably stressed about the whole thing. The last thing I'll say about this is Riley's whole thought process on treasure hunting Mm-hmm. is related to and i know you're gonna say it means risk averse but it's related to his stress nature about all of these crazy things that ben is doing when he's saying why can't they just say go to this place 
and here is the treasure spend it wisely it's like he would rather avoid all of this other stuff that's causing this unnecessary stress and go with an unstressful solution you call well now i'm gonna lean into this hard you call this reasonably stressed i call that lazy he just wants the treasure handed to him I think it's reasonably stressed if you see what Ben puts him through in these movies, Aubrey. Okay, well, with a comment like that, I suspect I know where you think this character trait comes from. (laughs) Yes, I think it is fully from being around Ben. Ben is doing crazy stuff, and I think Riley is just reasonable in all of his responses. Ben needs someone to bring him back down to earth, and Riley is just reacting as any normal person would do. Okay, two responses. Number one, you are again proving my point that Riley is Ben's foil and I agree with you and number two now I'm getting a little offended if we think that I'm Ben in this relationship and you're (laughs) Riley now you are implying that I give you reasonable stress reactions yes how (laughs) oh my gosh we're gonna take this conversation offline okay Aubrey so (laughs) how do we even follow that (laughs) tabling that discussion for now Aubrey let's let's go on to your uh third and final adjective for Riley what do you have for us or for me should I say I mean yeah I guess it's for you I'm actually really curious to hear your your response to this one when I'm done though because if you do feel yourself as Riley, and because I see this being so parallel to the academia world, I I really am genuinely curious your thoughts, because the third kind of combo adjective I'm going to use here is out of place slash insecure. Oh, you're coming in with a combo adjective, huh? Yeah, I might have lied to you and said I wasn't going to do that, and then I absolutely did. Hmm. But I'm going to once again compare this to Ben, who's the exact opposite, and completely owns his character and that character's bizarre role in this whole treasure hunt world. Okay. And, and I need to start this by saying, once again, I do not mean out of place and insecure in a negative or a mean way. I just get the impression that at all times in these movies, um, Riley has something to prove because he's just out of place in this treasure hunting world that he has found himself in. Because here's the thing, to solve treasure hunts, I would suspect based on readings that we've done, conversations we've had with folks, you need passion for the subject, which is what Ben has, and you need knowledge conducive to solving the clues in the hunt. So history in this case, which both Ben and Abigail have. Riley doesn't have the passion for the hunt. As we discussed, he's not here for some noble historical cause. And it's clear that he doesn't have the historical background and knowledge, either by educational pedigree or just basic, you know, background knowledge, because he's, again, not the one solving most of the clues. Riley's role is important, but it is tangential to the theme of the hunt. He is ultimately replaceable as the the tech bro of the situation, whereas in some ways, Ben and Abigail are not because you can't easily replace that particular subset of historical knowledge and passion. Do you see Mm. what I mean? 
I do. And moreover, and I think this is a testament to to Justin Bartha himself, the actor, we as the audience, I think, get the impression that Riley knows he's out of place. And it comes across once again as this sarcasm or even frustration. We'll go to one of my favorite early quotes from the first movie when um, we are interpreting the meaning of the riddle written on the stem of the Meerschaum pipe. Mm -hmm. And Ben is doing his thing where he's like spitting out words that mean something to the clue. And Riley goes, Albuquerque, snorkel. See, I can do it too. That's to me, you know, an, an audible version of his frustration coming out, knowing that he's out of place here. You know, we see it again um, related to the daylight savings time when he actually does solve a clue and his first response when really time is of the essence and Ben and Abigail just really want him to provide the answer. Riley's first response is, oh, this must be how you feel all the time. Okay. Yes, it's sarcastic, but I think it's a reflection of this frustration that he feels given his situation in this crew. In fact, one could perhaps make the case that this insecurity, this out of place nature is the reason why Riley wrote his particular brand of Templar treasure book in between the two movies. You know, he could have easily written about the technical side of the hunt, all of the tech tricks that he used and the coding and the computers and all of that. But instead, he wrote about the historical tidbits and the ones that only he would know about because they're not common knowledge. They're not taught in history class or in Ben's college classes to get him his history degree, etc. It's almost as if Riley's trying to prove himself as some sort of historical authority to overcome that insecurity. Mm -hmm. And I really think that this self-awareness is one of the reasons why Riley as a character is so effective as being this stand-in for the audience who again would also be quite out of place and insecure on these adventures. So this is actually the adjective that I wrote that I feel most strongly about and I'm, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts Em. I mm, put me in a tough spot here. <laughs> because I've convinced you even though you don't like it? Convinced is a strong word. I think that you make a lot of good points and I can definitely see where you're coming from. And I can see how Riley might be displaying some of these traits uh, or some of this trait, I should say. Um, darn, yeah, I think you might've just convinced me. <laughs> I'll take it. Hey, I know it's not like, and, and this is one of those things where maybe it doesn't have to, you know, be a, a description of you exactly, but literally a description of Riley in this case, um, because he's in a very different situation in his, you know, film setting life than you are in yours. But the reason I think this is interesting is because, you know, in academia, which is a place you and I both come from, we are constantly grappling with feelings of insecurity, feeling out of place, imposter syndrome. I think you could almost call this imposter syndrome. Yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? So in any case, I'll wrap this up by answering the question of where do I think this insecurity comes from for Riley? And um, I think that this might be a foreign feeling 
for him, especially if my theory about always being the smart one in school and at work holds water. Um, and so I think that makes him really uncomfortable suddenly being turned on its head and like, okay, you're not only not the smartest one anymore, but in some cases you are completely replaceable. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that makes him a little uncomfortable. And as a result, he tries to like rectify the situation by writing a book quite literally. Um, yeah. yeah. So that's, uh, that's my end to my Riley thesis. Emily, you have one more to go though. What's your third and final adjective? I do. And, you know, I'm going to take us back a little bit into this kind of joking territory, a little less deep than you were and a little bit kind of coming off of my previous adjective and touching on some of your previous adjectives. Um, I would describe Riley as realistic. Okay. So, I mean, and I think this a lot in a lot of ways comes from the fact that as you've mentioned, he is supposed to be kind of this insert for the character, for the audience in a lot of ways that I feel like the audience in many senses is very much more realistic about the nature of things than Ben or Abigail. Well, yeah, it's the reason why people ridicule this movie so much. Right. And I think Riley is playing that part and is really pointing that out, but in a way that's slightly less mean, right? Than as you're saying, like ridicule of the movie itself, obviously, mm -hmm. because he's a character in the film. <laughs> so when Ben and Abigail and Riley are all in Parkington Lane, or underneath to be more exact, um, and Ben and Abigail are apologizing and talking about how Ben almost dropped Abigail, uh, but he went to drop the Declaration of Independence. And they're having this little discussion about who they would have dropped, right? Would they have dropped the other person or the Declaration? And Abigail kind of makes a point that she probably would have dropped Ben over dropping the Declaration. Riley pipes in and goes, I would have dropped you both, freaks. <laughs> also sarcasm again. Also sarcasm, <laughs> but I would like theme. to say, yes, Riley. That is accurate. That is the realistic perspective. Emily, who would you have dropped, me or the declaration? If it meant saving my life? I think it means saving me or the declaration. If it means saving you or the declaration, I would have dropped the declaration. Really? Oh, I'm so honored. Would you, wouldn't you have? Yeah, probably. <laughs> I, I've never given much thought to the fact that I could be carrying the Declaration of Independence in a poster tube on my back, to be completely frank. Wow. So I think <laughs> this just tells us that, Ry or that Aubrey is more like Ben and I am more like Riley. So <laughs> great job there demonstrating my point. Thank you so much for that, Aubrey. And on to the next point, I will move. So when Riley and Ben at the begin towards the beginning of the first movie are meeting with abigail in her office they're trying to convince her that people are going to steal the declaration of independence i'd like to point out that riley's the one to pipe in and say and that's where we lost the department of homeland security as they're describing the clues that are leading up to someone inevitably stealing the declaration of independence now Aubrey, I just want to, you know, you, you've mentioned it before, but I want to, I want to bring us back around to this quote that you brought up in your first point about prison, because prison is one of your favorite points of this movie. 
because <laughs> someone's got to go to prison. But after Ben decides to steal the Declaration of Independence, Riley proclaims, this is huge, prison huge. You are going to go to prison. You know that, right? Yeah, probably. Well, that would bother most people. Realistic, Riley. Yes, you are pointing out that Ben is going to go to prison for doing this thing. That is 100% a realistic take on the situation. He is ignoring the fact that he too will end up going to prison as an accomplice or an accessory. But hey, who's counting? (laughs) I'd like to believe that at this point, he has not fully convinced himself to (laughs) go go in (laughs) on the stealing of the Declaration of Independence. And then I think one of my favorite examples when Riley is still he's going along with the stealing of the Declaration of Independence a little bit but he's also still trying to convince Ben that stealing the Declaration of Independence is like not a good move he's trying to convince him it's not even possible he is he brings Ben to the Library of Congress and he starts talking about you know why he has brought him to the Library of Congress and he says Over 20 million books, and they're all saying the same exact thing. Listen to Riley. He goes ahead and shows Ben the layout of the archives, how they were constructed, all of the phone lines, the water and the sewage pipes, all of the guards that surround it. Riley literally says, now when the declaration is on display, it is surrounded by guards and video monitors and little families from Iowa and little kids on their eighth grade field trip. And underneath an inch of bulletproof glass is an army of sensors and heat monitors that will go off if someone gets too close with a high fever. He then goes on to explain, now when it's not on display, it is lowered into a four foot thick concrete steel plated vault that happens to be equipped with an electronic combination lock and biometric access denial systems. Tell me what is not more realistic than that. Well, Emily, it's funny you should ask, because it turns out he is once again trying to regain control of his intelligence and his knowledge here by trying to come across as a smart one. But once again, he is wrong, and Ben is able to immediately disprove him with a very realistic option. And what is Riley's response? Frustration as a result of his insecurity, which is when he says delicious jams and jellies. Is Ben proving him wrong? Is Ben proving him wrong? I think not. I think Ben is simply pointing out an alternative strategy. I think everything that Riley has said is true. It is, but he's not recognizing the fact that what Ben is proposing is actually a realistic solution to make this possible. After the fact, sure. But at this point, he was being very realistic. Okay. (laughs) Okay, so... Where, where does this realistic trait come from, Emily? In a writing perspective, it definitely comes from the fact that Riley's supposed to be the audience and the audience, like I said, looks at these things through a much more realistic perspective than Ben often does. But I think also, and I know I've been blaming Ben for a lot of these character traits of Riley, but I think that it also, once again, comes from being friends with Ben. You always need someone if you're someone like Ben to pull you back down to reality and to really lay out kind of what is and isn't possible and realistic about the different things you're saying. And I think that much like to the point that you're saying about how he proves a perfect foil for Ben, I think Riley is 
it doing exactly that for Ben. He is pulling him back down to reality and kind of showing him what may or may not be possible. Yeah, so I think if we agree on one thing from this conversation, since there was clearly much contention, <laughs> it's that Riley and Ben are opposites, which is actually really fun when you think about it, M, since you and I consider ourselves to be pretty opposite. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, well, now that our adjective analysis is out of the way, it's time to move into our final two segments, which are, in my humble opinion, two of our most fun segments, the first of which is your patriarchy corner, Emily, so hit it. Welcome, one and all, to my patriarchy corner. Yes, today we are going to be talking about the big, the bad, the patriarchy. Now, I feel like I've alluded to this a little bit already over the course of the past two episodes that we've done that have been character analyses. So go back deep into the recesses of your brains and pull out those episodes. Guys, I think that Riley is primarily here a silent supporter of the patriarchy. Ben, as the main character, gets most of the lines pertaining to the patriarchy. And we've already talked about that in both his and Abigail's episodes, so I'm not going to rehash all of the things that I said. But I will point out that Riley doesn't do anything to directly combat what Ben is saying and also doesn't do anything to directly suggest that Ben should view things from a different perspective. Got it, got it. Okay. I also know that Riley, for as many good quotes that he has in these films, he has some kind of questionable ones too. He does. And Aubrey, this is where I'm going to, I will have to take a hit personally (laughs) here as I do relate to Riley very strongly, but in these, in some moments, Riley does actively promote the patriarchy. Uh, He says some things that are not so great. um, And usually they're about Abigail and usually they're before he knows Abigail as a person, which is not an excuse for why you should uphold the patriarchy at different points in your life, depending on how well you know or do not know the person you're talking about. You should still not do it, bad Riley. But care to share? (laughs) Riley says to Ben, is that the hot girl? How does she look? Mind you, this is his first way of describing Abigail, objectively to Ben. So not great not great that we're just referring to her as the hot girl and this is when um riley is in ben's ear at the gala right true yes so we've already met abigail he knows her name Mm -hmm. he knows she's a doctor Mm -hmm. he's only referring to her as hot girl and then following it up by asking how she looks so come on riley do better Oh, and isn't there also, I I know you didn't write this down, but when they first meet Abigail in her office, isn't Riley the one that says um, a very cute man when he assumes that the doctor, doctor chases a man? Yes. Aubrey, not, yes, fine. You're you're helping in this patriarchy corner, but you're not helping paint Riley in the positive light that I want him. Here's the thing. You know what? I knew you had the positive side under control. I just had to even it out. Thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, as an additional negative to Riley and his thoughts regarding the patriarchy, we have 
when Ben is leaving the gala itself and Riley sees Ben coming down the street and once again in Ben's ear says, Ben, the mean declaration lady is behind you. <laughs> once again, first of all, we referred to her as hot girl before. Second of all, we've met her. We know her name is Abigail. We know she is Dr. Chase. Why are we referring to her as the mean declaration lady? I get it if you can't remember her name, Riley, but like the mean declaration lady, unnecessary. Patriarchy right there. What a what a fun corner you have, Emily. I know. Thank you. With that, thank you for joining me in this joyous and fun-filled corner that I host. And with that, I would like to turn it over to you, Aubrey, and hope to get some more positives back in the character of Riley. Please tell us how Riley Poole compares to the actor Justin Bartha. Yeah, so this is the fun way we like to end these episodes to kind of consider how like the character, the person portraying the character actually is. And I'm gonna start by saying, This segment today is going to be challenging and admittedly a bit of a stretch since we know exactly one thing about Riley Poole's background. (laughs) (laughs) With that said, I just wanted to start with a tiny bit of reference material for who Justin Bartha is as a person. Um, So it turns out that Justin was born in Florida and moved early on to Michigan. He is the son of a real estate developer and a school teacher, and he studied filmmaking and theater at Tisch School of Arts. So, similarly to Riley, uh, Justin Bartha was actually in the background of his chosen career before reaching the prime time. You know, Justin Bartha was a production assistant and a writer and producer of short films, even an MTV pilot, um, before he broke out as an actor. Um, Of note, he has also done a bit of theater acting, even since landing some of his more notable TV and film roles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this sort of background nature before coming to the forefront, I feel like sort of mirrors Riley's experience sort of in the tech world in a cubicle before becoming part of this, what we're meant to assume is at least a national, if not worldwide story of a treasure hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Also similar to Riley in a sense, given my parts of the character analysis previously, um, Justin Bartha has been quoted as saying he is superstitious and has rituals related to his acting. In addition, um, in preparation for National Treasure 2, he did look up some conspiracy theories, which he said interested him. So that's fun, I guess, especially since we know, and we revealed this in a previous episode, that Justin Bartha actually had a role in the... Templar treasure book storyline for Riley in the second movie. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, relatedly and indirectly, Emily, you and I have had a few discussions on the podcast and even with National Treasure fans in our DMs about the nature of Riley's sexuality in National Treasure, which some have viewed as a little bit ambiguous. Now, it is true that we're given very few hints and if anything are led to actively assume Riley is heterosexual given the woman at the end of National Treasure 2. But we have pondered whether Riley could be portrayed um, somewhere along the spectrum of sexuality in National Treasure 3. And if he did, if they did decide to explore that as a new angle of character trait for him, since he has absolutely nothing else in his background that we know of so far, um, 
Just and Bartha would actually have some experience to pull from in terms of his own acting career, since mm. he has played an LGBTQI plus role in the past. Um, he actually co-starred in NBC comedy, The New Normal, which Oops. premiered in 2012 and was canceled just a year later. Um, Justin co-starred as one half of a gay couple working with a surrogate to have a child. How did I miss this show when it was on? I mean, we, we were, were in college. We were, but, you know, maybe we hadn't discovered our mutual national treasure love yet. And I feel like this, I mean, you didn't watch NBC type shows. You watched like the CW. Yeah. And you watched Freeform. Yeah. So we just missed it. Anyway, um, the last thing that I wanted to point out here is that Justin Bartha has been married since 2014 to a fitness instructor, which feels very Riley, to be honest. <laughs> you know, he wants the hot girl to go back to his quotes about Abigail and the way he treats, you know, the woman at the end of the film, the second film. Um, and so Justin Bartha has two children with his wife. Now, fun fact, his first daughter's middle name is Charlotte, and Ooh. I am absolutely going to start spreading a rumor that that is because of national treasure yes do it <laughs> so y'all heard it here first um and so i always like to end this little segment by considering you know if we got to speak to justin bartha and ask him one question about national treasure what would i ask him and I think I would ask in this case, given the lack of background information that we have as an audience about Riley, I would want to know what sort of a backstory Justin Bartha developed in his own head or even with the writers to inform how he played the character. And I would want to know if this backstory and how he played the character was mostly up to him or if the writers had sort of a direction they wanted him to go with the character, you know, how much of that was, was really just his acting prowess, because even no matter how we feel about the character of Riley before this episode or after this episode, I think we can agree that Justin Bartha played the character really strongly. I, yes, a hundred percent. And so that's, uh, that's my comparison for you today. And, and actually- Beautiful. That is our character analysis of Riley Poole. We hope you all enjoyed it. I certainly had a time. <laughs> Emily, I thought you were going to enjoy this way more than you did. It was stressful. <laughs> well, okay, Riley. Okay. <laughs> so everyone, um, we do want to hear your thoughts on this episode. This might be one of our more contentious ones between Emily and myself, all in good fun, of course. Um, but how do you feel about how Riley was portrayed? Were you as surprised as we were to realize how little we knew about this character and how much we needed to interpolate or extrapolate how we felt about him and what we knew about him? Tell us, uh, tell us your thoughts. Yes, go ahead and tell us on Twitter or Instagram at NT Hunt Podcast. You can also find us to listen to on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Also, go ahead and check us out over on Good Pods. If you want to further support your favorite National Treasure co-hosts, go ahead and check out our merch store, which is linked in our link tree in our bio. Go ahead over to Tee Public. get your t-shirts, get your notebooks, get your stickers and magnets, everything you can ever want and more. And you know, it is the end of August. So guys, with that, the holidays are coming up. It will be October when this comes out, I think. 
So guys, hold on, hold on. Let me let me confirm when this is coming out. Okay, this will come out the end of September. So guys, it is the end of September, which as we all know, means that the holidays are soon approaching. Go ahead and get your gear for you and any of your friends, family, or other loved ones. Ooh, love that plug. And hey, one more request for you all, and that's to come back for our next episode coming in about two weeks time, depending on when you listen to this one. And our next episode is going to be one of our fun pop culture comparison episodes, we will be taking a look at National Treasure as it compares to the fairly recent film Jungle Cruise. That is going to be a good time because I think there's there's so many parallels. I literally had a note in my phone that I was taking in real time while I was at the movie theater, you know, watching Jungle Cruise. And I stand by my thought that they have absolutely nothing in common with one another. <laughs> oh my gosh. So I see the pattern of contention is going to continue on to the next episode. Hopefully you all come back and join us for that one. And until then, I'm Aubrey. And I'm Emily. And thank you so much for joining us on our National Treasure Hunt. <laughs>